The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Good evening. If you have your Bible, please open to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'd like to begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Here we read of the Apostle Peter addressing husbands and wives. He writes, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste, that is your virtuous or pure conduct accompanied by fear or reverence, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Would you please pray with me, Once more, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would meet with us in a special way as we open your word. We thank you for this teaching from the Apostle Peter. We thank you for designing the family. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us in so many ways. But most of all, we thank you for your son. And we pray that he would be exalted and he would be glorified in all that we say and think. We pray in his name, amen. Now it can be argued that Augustine of Hippo in North Africa was the most important Christian theologian in all of church history, apart from the apostles. Augustine lived from 354 to 430 AD. Among his most important written works were four books that I want to review with you briefly. The City of God, where he expounded important questions of theology, such as the suffering of the righteous, the existence of evil, the doctrine of original sin, and the tension between free will and divine omniscience, God's infinite knowledge. The second book on the Trinity, which some scholars see as his masterpiece, dealing with the Trinity in the context of the Logos. The third book is on Christian doctrine. In this work, Augustine dealt with how we should interpret and teach the scriptures. And then the fourth book is his autobiography entitled Confessions in which Augustine writes an an autobiographical work from his sinful youth 
to his conversion into Jesus Christ. He articulated the doctrine of original sin alongside God's grace through divine election. He was among the first to make a distinction between the church visible and the church invisible. He promoted the amillennial view of the end times, which has become a major doctrine throughout church history. And he is the first to support what has become known as the just war theory, which argues if and when going to war is morally defensible. Three of his most famous quotes I want to share with you. Number one, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Number two, to sing once is to pray twice. I love that one. To sing once is to pray twice. It's a wonderful thing to pray and to cry out to our Heavenly Father. But it's so much more wonderful to worship Him and to give Him the worship that is due His holy name. To sing once is to pray twice. And then the third quote I'm bringing to you is this one. It's a little longer, but I think it's rich with food for our souls. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. Now what does this world-renowned theologian, Augustine, have to do with 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7? Behind this colossal figure of church history lies a mother who was a submissive wife with a gentle and quiet spirit. Augustine's mother, Monica, was married to a man named Patricius. Augustine's father, Patricius, was not a kind man. Patricius' behavior toward his wife and son, Augustine, was terrible. Church historians tell us that Patricius was a man who became easily angered and he was consumed with his own selfish daily interests. He was hostile to the Christian church for most of his life. Monica came from a devout Christian family, but she was married by arrangement to Patricius at the age of 22 when he was 40 years old. After the wedding, Monica moved into the house with Patricius and his mother. Her mother-in-law was a constant source of friction on her. And to make matters worse, Patricius was verbally abusive to Monica and did not hide the fact that he broke their marriage vows multiple times. Unfortunately, in the Roman culture at that time, Monica had no good options for relief available to her. In addition to Augustine, she had at least three other children. It's believed Augustine had one brother and two sisters. Monica not only had the difficulty of not, excuse me, had the difficulty of an unbelieving husband and a disrespectful mother-in-law, her son 
Augustine became known for his acts of self-indulgence and sexual adventure. These were unsettled times for Monica who possessed true faith in her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Patricius died, Augustine's life had overlapped with his father's only for the first 16 years. Church historians point to Monica's unwavering faith in her God, her patience, and her prayers as having played a significant role in the conversions of both her husband and her mother-in-law. Monica had the joy of witnessing both her husband and her mother-in-law become Christians shortly before they died. Augustine wrote extensively in his autobiography, Confessions, on the influence his mother, Monica, held upon his conscience and how God used her witness and faith to bring about his own conversion. It was her love for the Lord Jesus Christ that spoke to the hearts of her son, her husband, and her mother-in-law. Monica possessed the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. It's amazing to consider the far-reaching ripple effects that woman, Monica, was able to make in this fallen world. She had to fight the good fight of faith against difficult circumstances, an uncouth, offensive mother-in-law, an unfaithful, self-centered husband, and a son who turned his back on Christianity in favor of a sexual lifestyle, a promiscuous lifestyle. And yet, Through all those trials and difficulties, she kept her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ vibrant and active. She prayed and she meditated upon the word of God. And those who were in bondage to sin, her husband, her mother-in-law, and her son Augustine observed her virtuous conduct accompanied by her affections and desires for God. And so they were won over by her gentle and quiet spirit. God, by his grace, used this 22-year-old newlywed wife to have such a wonderful influence on her whole family and on the whole world. And because Monica, this world is blessed today with an incredible mind and theologian, Augustine of Hippo. Here in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, we find the responsibilities given to wives and husbands with reference to their conduct toward one another. In this passage tonight, we have a blueprint for God-glorifying oneness in marriage. And I'd like to consider these seven verses under four divisions. First, the command for wives to voluntarily submit, verses one and two. Second, the adornment God desires wives to display, verses three and four. Third, the encouraging example of holy women, verses five and six, and then fourth, how husbands are commanded to live with their wives, verse seven. Follow as I read just the first two verses once more. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste or your pure, virtuous conduct accompanied by fear or reverence. 
Now, before we consider what this text means, I want us to first think about what this text doesn't mean. And the reason I want to do that first is because a misunderstanding of this passage can bring much harm. And unfortunately, some Christians have justified offensive and obnoxious applications in their marriages from this text of Scripture. So let's first clarify what biblical submission is not. Number one, to be a submissive wife does not mean the wife becomes a slave. The truth is that the submissive wife is never more free than when she's living by the word of God. Because it is then that she's become all that God has intended and purposed her to become as a Christian wife. Number two, to be a submissive wife does not mean she never opens her mouth or never has an opinion or never gives advice to her husband. She does not have to always agree with her husband. She's to be free to have her own ideas and her own opinions. We must remember what God has told us by the pen of Moses in Genesis 2.18a. We read of the one thing, the one thing that was not declared good in all of God's creation. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Then in the second part of this verse, God declares his solution to man's loneliness. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And that word helper in the Hebrew, azer, is a word that's used often throughout the scriptures to describe God's character as a helper. The sense in the original Hebrew is God made Eve a helper suitable for him, a helper fit just for him. The woman was made to be the ideal partner for the man. Man is incomplete and missing a vital helper needed to help him as he, together with his helper, fulfills his God-given mission to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. Number three, submission does not mean the wife is inferior to her husband. In, this excellent, in, in his excellent book, Wayne Mack, Strengthening Your Marriage is the title, he, he uses several illustrations to help us understand that the wife is equal to her husband in worth and value, notwithstanding, she is commanded to submit to his authority. Mac writes this, Jesus Christ was not inferior to Mary and Joseph, and yet the scripture says that as a child he continued in subjection to them, Luke 2, 51. Jesus Christ was in no way inferior to the Father, God the Father. He was and is fully and completely God in every sense as the Father. Yet Scripture asserts that there is order and structure in the Trinity. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Paul declared, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. Certainly, this does not imply that Christ is inferior to God the Father. Rather, it teaches that there is a division of labor and responsibility in the Trinity. 
And in like fashion, the submission of the wife in no way implies inferiority. Instead, it teaches the necessity for order and structure, for a division of responsibility within the family. And number four, to be a submissive wife does not mean you have to tolerate physical abuse or an unfaithful husband. You're not commanded to leave him, but the Bible gives you recourse to leave him if he's unfaithful or physically abusive. Monica stayed with her husband. God's word provides a clear recourse and relief for the protection of wives whose husbands have abandoned or abused or committed adultery against their wives. If your husband physically assaults you or abuses you, you should call the police immediately. My heart goes out for any women that are, can hear this sermon, whether online or in this room, that have been abused physically by husbands or in any way. If you have a husband who constantly and relentlessly subjects you to verbal humiliation, you do not have to remain quiet and just accept the daily cruelty of that abuse. This is a sad reality in some marriages in our communities and throughout our country. There are actually men who raise their fists against their own wives. How barbaric. If you are in a marriage where your husband is abusive and threatening, you should not feel as though you must remain silent. The word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul states in this letter to the Christians at Ephesus, excuse me, to his letter to the Christians at Ephesus, he says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word and that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Having considered now what Christian submission is not, now let's consider what Peter writes Christian submission is. The principle of submission is something Peter has been dealing with throughout the first epistle. In chapter 2, verses 13 and 17, he calls for Christian submission to government authority. God has established government authority, and he wants Christians that are citizens in that government to submit to that authority, to pay their taxes. And of course, there are, upset, there are exceptions to this if the government asks us to violate God's moral law. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, he calls, Christian, he calls for Christian submission of slaves towards their masters. Or in our contemporary setting, Christian submission of employees to employers. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Jesus humbled himself and became a man and suffered and died in our place. Here in our passage today, Peter writes to wives, starting with the word likewise. Just like civil authority, 
Just like employers and employees and slaves and masters, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Recognize the authority that God has given to your husbands. It's important for us to understand that Peter is not calling us to a mere obedience to a principle of submission. But more importantly, Peter is calling us to recognize the person who compels wives to submit in order that we might live lives of godly obedience and bring honor and glory to him. If you look back at the end of chapter two, notice what Peter writes to servants immediately after calling them to be submissive to their masters with all reverence, with all fear, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the harsh ones. In verses 21 through 25, Peter writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, no, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So whether it's citizens to the government, governing authorities, or whether it's servants to masters or wives to husbands, in all three situations, Christians are to present themselves before a watching world as people who imitate Jesus Christ. Christians are called to submission for the glory of God. We are to be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the political sphere, in the workplace, And now in chapter three, Peter turns his attention to the domestic sphere where God calls wives to be submissive to their own husbands for the glory of God, for the good of the whole family unit, and for the testimony of Christ in the world. God is is a God of order. It's not his will to promote chaos and confusion. When God created the institution of marriage, he did not create a two-headed monster. In order for the husband and wife to operate as a team in such a way that brings God glory in the earth, there is need for leadership, and that leadership was primarily given to the husband. In a Christian marriage relationship, God does not condone perpetual arguing and contesting where the loudest and longest voice wins the day whenever family decisions have to be made. Marriage is not a human idea. It's been given to us by Almighty God. We are stewards and managers of it. We must manage it according to the one who came up with the blueprints. God does not want four hands on the steering wheel, only two. Otherwise, chaos and disorder become commonplace. 1 Peter 3 is not the only place God has ordained this command for Christian wives. Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. To the Ephesians, he writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, husbands, you're to love your wives like Christ loves the church. Which do you think is harder? (laughs) Which do you think is harder? To love your wife like Christ loves the church, or wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Spurgeon thinks it's a lot harder to be loving his wife like Christ loves the church. In Colossians it says, wives, submit yourself, or excuse me, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And finally Paul writes to Titus, who he left in Crete to settle things and put things in order that were lacking. He writes in Titus 2, 3 through 5, he says, the older women, and this, this, is a, this is a call for our older women at EBC, older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Why? That they may, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now I believe, I believe that the Proverbs 31 wife is a wonderful example of how free and how flourishing a submissive wife can be. How free and how flourishing a submissive wife can be. She seeks wool and flax and willingly, willingly works with her hands. No slavery here, willingly. She's like a merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household. She considers a field and buys it. We have some women realtors here. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She builds up her strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She uses her hands and makes cloth with the spindle. She cares for the poor. Yes, she uses her hands to show love to the needy. Indeed, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. On her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well. Oh, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is momentary as it passes with each year. But a woman who fears the Lord She shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands. Let her own works praise her in the gates. So now that we've briefly considered the command that wives be submissive to their own husbands, second, let's consider the adornment that God desires Christian wives to display. Verse three and four says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart 
with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. In these two verses, Peter is adding a bit more to the picture of a godly, born-again woman. What does a godly, born-again wife look like? He's already shown us she is a submissive wife honoring the authority of her husband, regardless if he's a believer or an unbeliever. He has already declared she's one of the pure and virtuous of character. So much more, or so much so, that even without a word, she might win over her husband to love her Savior and Lord. Now Peter comes and addresses how the wife possesses, how the wife who possesses living hope in Jesus Christ adorns herself. First, he gives her a caution, and then he opens up how to adorn herself. Now, in the Roman Empire, during the time that Peter wrote this epistle, like our own culture, there was a passion and a fascination with external adornment. So much attention was given to the hair, the jewelry, and the clothing, and the shoes. God wants Christian women to not be overly concerned about external beauty. Peter is not advocating women should never braid their hair. He's not advocating that women should never wear jewelry. And he's not advocating that they can't wear nice clothes. No, none of that is what he's advocating. That's not what is meant here. The concern in this passage is one of emphasis and obsession. Our culture has assaulted women by overwhelming them with the need for more and more and more and more. More jewelry, more clothes, more shoes, more hairstyling, more, more, more. All the products, all the costs to keep up with the latest styles is an endless and expensive racket. Some Christian women are left with a sense of never looking good enough, never being pretty enough. God does not want Christian women to be in this trap. Peter wants to free the Christian women from the, and this is a quote from one of the commentaries, from the obscene obsession of looking good. Now I'm glad my wife tries to look good. I'm talking about an obscene obsession of looking good. An obscene obsession And rather, let your adornment be hidden, person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Through Peter, God is calling Christian women to adorn, that is to beautify themselves with imperishable and incorruptible beauty of the hidden person of the heart. Literally, Peter calls Christian women to dress the inner man, It is the heart that God is looking at. He's looking at your heart. He's not like all the people in the world that are looking at the outside of you. It is the soul God wants you to dress up. And notice what is precious in the sight of God. It's a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. What an amazing motive 
Peter puts before his readers. He tells them that a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in the sight of God. What a wonderful thought for Christian women. That when you adorn your inner man, when you clothe your heart with a gentle and quiet spirit in the sight of God, you are precious. Do you see the contrast here? You can be precious of great value in the sight of God or you can stay obsessed with the obscene culture trap of always being focused on external beauty so that you might be precious to the eyes of mankind. This contrast of beautifying the heart or of beautifying the external body with a passion and fixation on hair, shoes, clothing, etc. This contrast begs a question for Christian women. And I want to ask all the Christian women listening to this sermon to think about the amount of time in a given week you spend on adorning the heart with the virtue of a gentle and quiet spirit. That means reading the word and praying. And compare that to the amount of time you spend obsessing over how you look and fixing your hair and makeup, etc., etc. Think about the time you take shopping for excessively shopping for shoes and excessively shopping for clothes and time that's not spent with your Savior. Take stock, which is more important to you, the condition of your soul, prayer, meditating on Scripture, Bible study, or shopping and being fixated on adorning your outer person. And another contrast comes to mind as we consider this incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For some wives, a gentle and quiet spirit is something rarely achieved. And I don't mean the the group of women in this room. I'm hoping that hundreds and hundreds of women will hear this sermon. Proverbs tells us about these wives Listen as I read just a few Proverbs. The contrast between a gentle and quiet spirit and a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. The word contentious in this verse means quarreling, scolding, and causing strife. Proverbs 21.9, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious or quarreling woman. Proverbs 21.19, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Young men and young boys that can hear me, you should be looking to marry this kind of woman, the kind of woman that is precious in the sight of God, one with a gentle and quiet spirit. Now we come to our third main point, the encouraging, the encouraging examples of holy women, verses five and six. 
For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Well, we could spend a lot of time on this heading, looking at the Old Testament and all the godly women that, that match this description, but I just want to, to be brief on this point. And if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 18. I want us to look at Sarah here. I think this passage on Sarah is not unlike the passage we heard this morning from Dr. Gonzalez about James and John and Peter, about them being sleepy and disobeying. God is not afraid to show us the sins of believers. And here, the very verse that Peter's alluding to in the Old Testament, Sarah is, is seen as, um, I think, sinning. But, but nonetheless, God points us to her because she actually does something almost automatically that we're supposed to pay attention to. Follow with me as I read um, chapter 18. And let's start at verse one and go to 15. So we get the context here. Now remember, God had promised that a great nation would come from, from Sarah, from Abraham and Sarah. And she's 100 years old and still hasn't given birth yet. And the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ shows up and speaks to Abraham. This is the son of God before he was incarnate. Him with two angels. It says, then the Lord, in the original it says, then Yahweh appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. As he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, talking about Abraham, So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant, but let a little water be brought and and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, the three of them, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took the butter and the milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and set it before him, And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? 
And the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the word Lord there is Yahweh. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Take note of the fact that Sarah was so used to calling Abraham Lord and seeing him as her authority that even as she thought to herself, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? That's what Peter's referring to. This is the only place in the Old Testament where we see Sarah using the word Lord, and it's in her thoughts. Why would, why would Peter point that to us? Here she is sinning and lying to Yahweh. But it was her normal course of how she viewed her husband that word lord is master it's 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 her authority also notice how gracious god is to us we heard it this morning in the sermon how even though we sin constantly daily hourly minute by minute we don't love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Lord still delights in us and still points to the things that we do well. He sees us in Christ. We're, we're his children. He treats us as a gracious heavenly father, not as someone who doesn't love him and believe in him. In Sarah's heart, the matter was settled. She was a wife who respected the authority of her husband. And now our fourth and final point. How husbands are commanded to live with their wives. Verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The phrase Peter uses, dwell with them, with understanding is also translated in the King James Version as dwell with them according to knowledge. And different scholars see this a little differently. Some dwell with them according to the knowledge you know that, that God has given you about how you're to treat her. And others say dwell with her according to knowledge, meaning understand her needs. And I, I'm, I'm caught in the middle, so... I want to teach them both to you. We should be knowledgeable of what God says and how we should treat our wives, but we're also to know our wives. I remember listening to a sermon by Mabewe, and he said he was talking to a crowd of maybe 500 people, and he said every single wife out here has a different face and a different heart and has different needs. My wife has different needs than your wife, and I need to know and live with her according to knowledge and to know her and to love her in the way that meets her needs, as well as know what God commands me to do in reference to my wife. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands are to live with their wives with the utmost care 
and concern for their well-being. Peter reminds us of her physical frame, that she's weaker, a weaker vessel physically. Men, this matters. This matters. This refers to her physical weakness, not her spiritual, not her social, not her intellectual weakness. Husbands are to protect their wives because most often husbands are physically stronger. You know, there's this, there's this uh, talking about not being in terror, not being in fear. Well, if you're married to someone who's strong and they're not dwelling with you according to knowledge and they're not tender, that can, that can create fear in, in the wife. According to knowledge, know her, study her, and live with her in such a way that you meet her particular needs. Every husband has a different wife and he must know his own wife and live with her according to her needs, her particular needs. Our wives must know our intimate care and love and concern to honor them. Unfortunately, the way our culture treats women as sex symbols, focusing on the physical, on the top of their body and the bottom of the body and the back of their body and, it's, and we're saturated with that. And so when husbands get married, a lot of young men, they're focused on that. We're to love our wives with honor and with concern and not see them as a physical object. Now thankfully, God has blessed us with sexual intimacy. What a blessing. It is a real shame how our society has degraded women in such a grotesque way. You see it on TV, in the movies, in the ads, in the magazines, and all over the internet. Women are shown forth as sex symbols so that we are to only be focused on their physical features. Too many men in our culture see women only for their outward beauty, and this is very, very sad. What does it mean to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I remember, this made me cry. I remember talking to our brother who moved away. I won't ma mention his name on, on this microphone, but he was a Green Beret, Special Forces, did many tours. I think he did seven or eight tours all over the place. And he said that they were in Afghanistan in a large room like this, surrounded by walls and walls and layers and layers of sandbags. And they had a hospital in there. And one of these Muslim men, he was cooking with oil and, 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 and it kind of exploded and all of his children were severely burned and his wife was severely burned. And he brought his family to the hospital and they let him in through the sandbags and the doctors were caring for him for them and he said he didn't bring his wife he only brought the children and he said women there are like dogs they treat them like dogs but get another one you can see why some women would be tempted to live in fear and terror in a society like that where they're the weaker vessel and they're treated like a like a dog that made me so angry and I know it makes Christ angry. We are to honor 
are wise because they are physically weaker than us. We're to love them tenderly and honor them. Too many men in our culture see women only for their outward beauty. This increases their fear. Women, you think if you adorn yourself with outward beauty to attract men, that that's going to bring security and bring a provision for you and bring peace to you? No. That's going to bring fear to you later if that's all they want from you is your physical body. Men can create fear in women simply because of their physical superior strength. This knowledge should cause husbands to honor and protect their wives. Our gracious God implicitly forbids men from abusing their wives. Indeed, women are co-heirs of the grace of life. Our wives are fundamentally equal with us because they're our brother and sister in Christ. Praise God, Christian husbands and wives have the same eternal destiny, an eternal inheritance in God's kingdom. As husbands, we have two powerful motives for showing honor and care and concern for our wives. One, that our wives are a fellow heir with us of the grace of life, and two, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now this word, your, here in the original, it's a plural. And the commentators, the best Greek commentators say that it's referring to the husband and the wife. He's making an assumption, Peter is, that husbands and wives pray. But if you don't honor the wife and dwell with her according to knowledge, you should do that because your prayers may be hindered. Your family prayers together with you and your wife will be hindered. Eternal life is the inheritance for us and our wives. We are equally children of God, blessed with a living hope. What a motive to honor our wives. For God has sent his son to die for them as well as for us. Jesus took the wrath of God for our wives. He was their substitute on the cross as much as he was our substitute. Husbands who ignore such a command to honor and love their wives will learn that God will refuse to answer their prayers. God does not approve of those husbands in positions of authority who abuse and neglect those who are under them by mistreating them. Much more could be said about husbands and wives, but I want to stop now and just bring a brief application. You can see God's wisdom. Sin has ruined the family. Sin has ruined the marriage relationship. But God has given us his word and given us his spirit and given us a savior, Jesus Christ, to reverse the curse. We don't have to live like barbarians and treat our wives like, like, like dogs. We can look to Christ and look to his word and he's given us a blueprint here in, in Peter and in, and in Ephesus as well as Colossians. We're to love our wives and wives, submit to your husbands not because they're so wonderful but because God commands you to. 
God commands you to. He doesn't want chaos in the home. Now, I'm thankful for my wife. She has so many gifts, especially with economics. I'm not good with money. I get my paycheck and hand it to her. I need help. Just give me it as I need it. But I delegate that to her. She doesn't rip it out of my hands because I know she's better at that than I am. She's better at, she's more disciplined with money and saving. So she's a help meet suitable. She's my helper. And maybe, maybe you have a wife that has a certain gift in a certain area. Use your wife. She's a teammate. Wives are, are, are a helper. Don't use your badge of authority in a disgraceful way. Jesus said you're to love your wives like Christ loves the church. And oh, what a wonderful institution marriage is when it's lived the way God has designed it. It's, it's blessed. It's flourishing. It's happy. It's wonderful. All the good gifts that God has given us to be enjoyed with so, a soulmate, someone that you can love and cherish and pray with and read the scriptures with and worship with and, and enjoy life with. I only have two applications. One, you and I will never, ever, 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 ever be able to obey what God commands in 1 Peter 3 as wives or husbands unless we're born again. It's impossible to please God without his spirit, without being in union with Jesus Christ who gives us the power and gives us the grace that we need to humble ourselves and to repent and to believe and to obey we can't do it in our, in our dead state in Adam. We must be born again. So I implore you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, come to him before, before you leave this room. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then a few phrases later, he says, my heart is gentle and lowly. The maker of heaven and earth, the maker of the universe who became man had a heart, had a soul, a human soul that was gentle and lowly. God is so gracious. He's so, he's so good to us. Come to Jesus and be saved from your sins. And then the second application is for those of us that are Christians. I want to encourage you to stay connected to the vine. The branch cannot bear fruit unless you stay connected to the vine. Jesus is the vine. He gives us life and sap and nutrients that we need to bear the fruit that we need to bear. And how do we do that? How do we stay in the vine? We humble ourselves and we repent of our sins. We repent to our spouses and we believe his promises that whoever confesses their sins, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And every day, every day we need to do that. The way you came into the kingdom of God through Repentance and faith is the way you continue in the kingdom of God. Repentance and faith.
and clinging to his word, clinging to his promises, because that's how faith grows, through the word of God. But what happens? Why do we, why do we get away from the vine? Because we get prideful and we get, we get focused on the bread of life. I'm sorry, <laughs> the bread of physical life. And we heard this morning in Sunday school class that man shall not live by bread alone. So I implore you as Christians to, to stay connected to your Savior, use the means of grace, and then come, come to your spouse and have a meeting. And, and, and I, I have to do this quite often. Honey, I'm a jerk. I shouldn't have said it. Shouldn't have done it. Please forgive me. I'm really sorry. I love you and I can't believe I did that. Would you please forgive me? And she has to do the same. But we have to do that to maintain this precious oneness that God has given to us. Well, let's, let's end, in, end in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've not left us without provision, without resources. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that abides in us. Please help us to love our wives. Please help us to honor them and to care for them, to pray with them, to pray for them. Thank you that you've ordained helpers for man who is lonely and who is incomplete and that you made a fit helper for us. Oh, Father, I pray for every Christian wife in this room that you would help them to look to you, to look to your word, and that you would give them the grace they need to submit to the authority of their husbands. Give them the grace they need to to help him to help him, to give him advice, to caution him, to warn him, to love him, to honor him, to pray with him. Oh, Father, we thank you for our spouses. We thank you for our marriages. We pray that they might flourish and they might bring much honor and glory to you and that you would use our marriages even to bring some to faith in Christ. We thank you for Monica and for the grace that you gave her to love her husband and her children and even her mother-in-law. Bless us now as we part, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.